Thank you, Larry. Good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas to all of you. It's so great to see all of our young adults back for the holidays, doing so many different things in so many different parts of the country, moved away for college and moved away for work, and, uh, but it's a blessing to see you guys. We miss you when you're not here, and it's good to see all of you. Did you ever stop to wonder how in our increasingly secular culture, We can spend an entire two months celebrating the Incarnation, and yet this celebration doesn't seem to have any more impact in terms of the gospel and our culture. Have you ever thought about that? Or why in places like Japan, of course our missionary in Japan reports this, they celebrate Christmas there too, even though the population is only 2% Christian. What's that all about? Think about this for a moment, if you will. Our culture starts celebrating Christmas at the end of October. We see Christmas lights and decorations starting right after Halloween, for goodness sakes. There's a real irony, huh? Replacing Halloween decorations with Christmas decorations. You know, there are two radio stations in Tulsa that play nonstop Christmas music 24-7 from Thanksgiving week until Christmas. You might be thinking, well, sure, it's true. This is all true, but this is mostly a secular celebration. It's not really celebrating our Christian understanding of Christmas. It's Santa Claus. It's all those cultural trappings that we've all gotten very used to of the Christmas season. Of course, that is partially true, but if you listen for a moment to the Christmas music that's being played in the crowded stores in the mall while people are in their Christmas shopping frenzies, right after Jingle Bells, you might hear Joy to the World. And right after I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, you might hear Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So while our culture truly has certainly sentimentalized and secularized in many ways a Christian holy day, it hasn't entirely succeeded in removing any hint of Christian influence. Another interesting thing to think about is this. After Christmas, you have all these bargain bins out there with Christmas items for sale. These lower price items might even include a nativity scene, which depicts Jesus in a manger. So here we have the image of the maker of the universe reduced for a quick sale. You'd think God might be angry about this sort of trivializing of such a monumental event. However, you'd think instead of uh, giving us snow on Christmas, he might rain down fire and brimstone. But God allows this to go on, doesn't he? What does this say about God? I think we can begin to get an idea about the answer to that question by reading what's been called the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ. Scholars believe that this was an early Christian hymn. Maybe it was even sung as a Christmas carol, who knows. But it tells some amazing truths about these thoughts relating to Christmas. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 because we need to get the entire context of this passage of Scripture. Beginning with verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now those with the best memories among you will remember that last year at Christmas we also looked at this passage. But in that particular message, we only spent a few moments on the primary meaning of the passage. That is the attitude of humility that we're to have in ourselves as Jesus modeled. Last year, when we looked at this passage, we looked at the deep theology of what this means and doesn't mean when the passage says that Jesus emptied himself, which is the most literal translation of the beginning of verse 7, where some translations say he made himself nothing. So if you want to learn more about that, you'll have to dig up last year's Christmas message. It is online. But this year, we're getting back to basics a little bit more. And this year, with the same passage of Scripture, we're going to focus primarily on the point that Paul was making in writing this to the Philippians. What this passage tells us are a couple of key things relating to our opening thoughts. First of all, the hallmark of Jesus' time on earth was humble service and obedience, even obedience unto death. Secondly, juxtaposed with this reality, God is deeply invested in his own glory, and it all belongs to God the Father. It's his, and it's his alone to grant to others. That exaltation is granted to Jesus. We see that in this passage as well. Jesus, God the Son, it's granted to him by God the Father. And then last but not least, Jesus was content to embrace obscurity with the sure and certain knowledge of his eventual exaltation to the glory of God the Father. He was content to wait and to leave it to God, to wait on God's perfect plan. So when we read in Luke the traditional Christmas passage that we read, which Joel read at the outset of the service this morning, that the angels sang... Glory to God in the highest, it fully relates to what we're looking at here in Philippians chapter 2. Isn't it interesting that the angels didn't sing glory to the Messiah who was born today? Did you think about that? Instead, they sing glory to God in the highest. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. But the overarching purpose of that mission was to bring glory to to God the Father. I think it's safe to say that God is passionately committed to his own glory. A brief sampling of scripture will illustrate this. We look at Psalm 106, verse 8, which says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. And in Isaiah 43, verse 25, we read, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
Again in Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake. And then to make sure we get that idea, he repeats it. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In Ezekiel 36, 22, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. We say, okay, that's all Old Testament stuff. But we can look and see if there's a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. God was unashamed about glorifying himself in the Old Testament. And God the Son, Jesus, had one aim, to glorify God the Father. One of the few times we see Jesus even referencing his own glory is in John chapter 17, verse 1. We read there, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. But even here, what we see is Jesus asking God to glorify God the Son, yet the purpose for that was ultimately to bring glory to God the Father. So the clarity of the Old Testament remains. God wants, he protects, and he promotes his own glory. We read in John chapter 8, verses 50 and 54, these are the words of Jesus, but I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. And then in verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. So Jesus humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He became the Word made flesh who dwelt among us because he did not see equality with God as something to hang on to. Now let's be clear, this was a choice God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made together before the world began. Jesus would walk the earth as a man, fully God, at the same time, he's fully man. As we learned last year, Jesus never ceased to be God. Verse 6 of Philippians 2 tells us, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. One scholar rendered that verse, did not regard his equality with God as an object of solicitous desire. That is, though he was of a divine nature or condition, he did not eagerly seek to retain his equality with God, but took on him a humble condition, even that of a servant. We find in another commentary, it notes, in other words, God did not hesitate to set aside his self-willed use of deity when he became a man. As God, he had all the rights of deity, and yet during his incarnate state, he surrendered his right to manifest himself visibly as the God of all splendor and glory. Christ's humiliation included his making himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. The very nature of a servant certainly points to his lowly and humble position, his willingness to obey the Father and to serve others. So yet, in addition to the amazingly rich and deep theology of this, the primary purpose, again, of this passage is seen as verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Before that verse in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, we learn what that humility looks like, kind of a practical outworking of it in our relationships with one another. It means encouragement. It means comfort. It means tenderness and compassion. 
The clear implication is that these things are meant to be how we relate to one another. It means being like-minded. It means love. It means being one in spirit and in purpose. It means the things we do have no hint of selfish ambition or vanity. It means that we consider others as better or more significant than ourselves. It assumes that we do look out for our own needs, but it also encourages us to look out for the needs and interests of others. That's the practical part. And Paul reveals our model, our example for this in verse 5, which again tells us that we're to be like Jesus in our humility. We learn what Jesus' humble service looked like, what it meant for him as we follow these verses. For him, it meant leaving the throne room of heaven. At first, for a feeding trough. It meant giving up his divine privileges. It meant living in relative poverty for most of his life and in almost complete obscurity for 30 of his 33 years. Then when it was time for his public ministry and maybe a little bit less obscurity, it meant obedience to what all of that would look like, how this was all going to be played out. It meant obedience to God the Father who planned for Jesus to take the punishment for our sins. And to accomplish all this, it took a painful and humiliating death. But what happened after Jesus embraced humility and obedience and obscurity? God exalted him. God exalted him. God gave him the name above all other names, and God declared that the day will come when every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. And all this, as the apostle tells us in verse 11 of the passage in Philippians 2 that we're looking at, all this is to the glory of God the Father. So again, here we see all this connected to bringing glory to God the Father. Still, we can't escape this important admonition, and this is where the rubber meets the road for us as followers of Jesus this morning. Learning all this about Jesus' humility, we see in verse 5 that this is something we are to emulate. Have this attitude, it tells us. Have this mind among yourselves. Some versions say, let this mind be in you. No matter how you translate this verse, it means that we're to be like Jesus in his humility. Yet when we look around, when we look at ourselves, honestly, and when we look in our culture, even our Christian culture, we see that humility is most often replaced with self-exaltation, self-promotion, even boasting. If we're really honest with ourselves, we see that deep inside all of us is a desire to bring glory to me. In my research for this message, I found one study that said 80% of people want to be famous. Isn't that an amazing statistic? Now, it's one study. If you look at some of the most popular TV shows, think about what they're about. They're a competition to become famous, aren't they? We have American Idol. We have So You Think You Can Dance, Live to Dance, The Voice, The X Factor, Project Runway, America's Next Top Model, all these programs. Either people are trying to get on these programs to be famous or they're projecting their own wishes about fame and fortune as they watch. And Something I never thought of before Jim preached last week on 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 4 of that chapter tells us, among other things, when it's talking about what love is and what love isn't, It says that love does not boast. Isn't that interesting? 
Did you ever stop to think about that, that boasting or bragging is actually unloving? I never thought of it that way before last week. I was preparing this message, and Jim was preaching on that chapter, and I thought, wow, that's an interesting, that was new to me. Maybe it's not new to you. I'm thicker in the head than most of you. This spirit of boasting, says one commentary, proceeds from the idea of superiority over others, and it's connected with a feeling of contempt or disregard for them. Love would correct this because it would produce a desire that they should be happy, and to treat a man with contempt is not the way to make him happy. Love would regard others with esteem, and to boast over them is not to treat them with esteem. It would teach us to treat them with affectionate regard, and no man who has affectionate regard for others is disposed to boast of his own qualities over them. Besides, love produces a state of mind just the opposite of a disposition to boast. It receives its endowments with gratitude, regards them as the gift of God, and is disposed to employ them not in vain boasting, but in purposes of utility in doing good to all others on as wide a scale as possible. One of the challenges about all this is that humility doesn't come naturally to anybody. Well, let's say most of us. It does to me, but maybe not you guys. Now, true humility is part of God's sanctifying influence on our lives. What does come naturally to us is bragging or boasting or talking about ourselves. And you know why? It's part of our sin nature. It's rooted in deep history of of humanity. Remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis? Pride and lack of humility is as old as human history. Consider what it says in Genesis 11.4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now the people here didn't have a TV show to make a name for themselves. So they decided to build a city and a huge tower. We see so often in Scripture examples of how humility is compared favorably with trust and obedience. But the opposite of that is pride, and that's related to our independence and our disobedience. There's even some scientific research that shows talking about ourselves, whether in personal conversation or through social media sites like Facebook or Twitter, triggers the same sensation of pleasure in the brain as food or money. Isn't that interesting to consider? So I guess it because it comes naturally to us, we're off the hook, right? Of course not. A lot of things come naturally to us that we're to resist and seek God's grace to change in our lives. But I read an interesting report on this study in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, This report says that about 40% of everyday speech is devoted to telling others about what we feel or think. Now, through five brain imaging and behavioral experiments, Harvard University neuroscientists have uncovered the reason. It feels so rewarding at the level of brain cells and synapses that we can't help sharing our thoughts. The article continues, It rings true to me, said psychologist James Pennebaker at the University of Texas, who studies how people handle secrets and self-disclosure, but was not involved in this project. We love it if other people listen to us. Why else would you tweet? This article and an accompanying story go on to explain that in our culture, social media is a reflection of these values. The article, uh, one of of the writers of this sidebar, writes that social media era places a premium 
on witty, pithy status updates, many of which we craft to reflect well on us. A generation ago, many such comments about accomplishments, workplace victories, and relationships would have been seen as insufferable bragging. What is the impact of this spin? Have we lost the ability to even perceive it at times? Why do we think it's so necessary? Another part of the article notes that the Internet has given us a global audience for our self-promotion. And part of the appeal of that social media is that it encourages this self-promotion. We're all expected to, this article tells us, we're all expected to be perfect all the time. The result is more people carefully stage managing their online image. Boasting isn't just a problem on the Internet in a society of unrelenting competition where reality show contestants duke it out for the approval of aging celebrities and pastors have publicists. Anybody here? Any of our elders? I don't think any of us have publicists. But is it any wonder that we market ourselves relentlessly? Unfortunately, some people can't seem to tell the difference between sharing positive information that others might actually want to know and flat-out crowing. The article says, let me help. Bragging involves comparison, whether stated or implied. It's being overbearing and showing excessive pride. Isn't it fascinating, it is to me, that even the world sees this as a problem. It's not just, we're not just looking at what Scripture says, and we are, but the world sees this as a problem. There's another study that's yet to be published, but I read about it. It's from Columbia University. And this study reportedly will show that browsing Facebook or other social media sites increases our levels of narcissism as well as our self-esteem. Now, I'm not necessarily knocking social media in general. I have a Facebook page. This is just an illustration that like so many things in our world, what's essentially a neutral invention or technology can be used for good or it can be used for ill. And related to our theme this morning, isn't this something we should at least be aware of? This natural tendency we have to self-promote, to brag. Some of you may remember a cartoon character named Pepe Le Pew. Anybody remember Pepe Le Pew? Well, he once said, makes me feel humble, yet sort of proud. Isn't that the Romans 7 idea of our two natures at battle? Huh? our sin nature, which no longer owns us as Christians, versus the new creation we are in Christ, instructing us, changing us, transforming us into the image and likeness of Christ. So we see this admonition in Philippians and in other places in Scripture toward humility. We see, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he wrote to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So consider this thought too. If Jesus is truly our example in everything, doesn't it make sense that we will glorify God when we embrace obscurity of heart for his sake and for the sake of others. I read a great little book that prompted some of my thinking about this message this morning. It's called Embracing Obscurity. And I'd tell you the name of the author, but it was written anonymously. 
The author noted in the beginning of the book that he or she, whoever this author is, decided it would be hypocritical to write a book about humility and embracing obscurity and then attach your name to it. This takes us back to our opening thoughts, and I want to quote from this book. Remember how we wondered in the commonness of Christmas, how we can look past the reality of what we celebrate and have Christmas become so pedestrian and everyday and just kind of normal? Well, this author calls this the plain clothes robber principle. And the author writes, what keeps us numb, this author writes, to the jaw-dropping implications of creator becoming creature. I once heard of a robber who waltzed into a store in plain daylight without any disguise, betting that no one would suspect a plain clothes patron of demanding money at gunpoint. Though the criminal was eventually caught, he nearly pulled off an impressive robbery on the one principle, normalcy rarely stirs suspicion. And the author continues, I think this is what Satan is banking on, at least in Western civilization. Instead of squelching any mention of the most marvelous divine event in Earth's history, he has allowed it to be, or perhaps even nudged it, front and center. Why would he do that, you might wonder? Because of the plain clothes robber principle. Ironically, It's hard not to get numb to the splendor of a God-man when we have an entire exhausting season to celebrate it every year. We get lulled into thinking that we are keenly aware of this unlikely plan of God's to send his son as a baby. So the enemy of our souls, if you buy into this theory, doesn't have to do anything to shift our attention from the awesome truth of the incarnation. It just sort of becomes commonplace. And exhausting. It's enough to want to make you say, bah humbug. Yet another awesome truth is hidden in this reality of the commonplace, secularized Christmas. God lets all this happen for his purpose. Apparently, it was all planned that way. The author of this book again writes, what kind of God would allow this ludicrous act of mercy and salvation to become common fare at a discount store? an incredibly humble God, not weak, not ignorant, not even complacent or oblivious to the injustice, a justly and graciously humble God who manifests his humility not only in overlooking our profanity for a time, but in sending his son Jesus Christ in the first place. This is the Jesus we are to emulate, to be like, to have his attitude. In the midst of Paul's admonition to the Philippians about counting others more important than yourselves, he gives this hymn, the Carmen Christi, as sort of a sermon illustration. So if we're to be like Christ, we must follow him in his example of humility. All of this passage is an illustration of what it looks like to act humbly, to give one's life in service of others. And again, verse 5 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is clearly the most important part of this passage. In other words, think like this. Be like this. And it's what Paul hopes the Philippians will begin to understand and imitate. If we are to be like Christ, if we are to look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, if we're humbly to count others as more significant than ourselves, One of the most important ways we can do that is to follow Jesus' example of humility. And again, your attitude should be the same 
as that of Christ Jesus. And what an attitude it is. Now, Paul expands on this idea a little bit more. You and I have every reason to be humble. We may have talents and gifts. A lot of us here really do. We may have some authority. We may have some power. We may have some position. We may have many other things that others, maybe most others, don't have. So we can favorably compare ourselves with some people. But none of those things, not a one of them, are things we have because of anything in and of ourselves. Any talent we have is from God. Any gift we have is from God. Any authority or power or position we have is from God. But think of this, Paul tells us. Paul points this out to us. Jesus is God. He was God the Son even before the incarnation. Paul affirms this truth, understood and celebrated in this passage of Scripture. So when we consider this passage, it's important once again to consider the entire context, which is why we read the whole passage at the outset. The key point in this emptying of himself that Paul was emphasizing about Jesus was servanthood and humility. You may have thought at one time or another something like this. If it's so unbecoming of us to glorify about or brag about ourselves or promote our name or promote our own glory, why is it okay for God to do it? Have you ever thought that? I mean, when it says we know that jealousy is not good, right? But the Bible also says God's a jealous God. Why is it okay for God to be jealous? Why is it okay for God to promote his own glory and it isn't for us? Well, let me say this. It's not only okay, it's appropriate and necessary. When we promote ourselves, we are promoting a frail and fallible creature. And we are creatures who owe absolutely anything and everything that's good about us, life and breath and everything we might have, to the Creator. There's an old saying that it ain't bragging if it's true. You hear people who brag a lot say that. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure that's an accurate statement when it's said by any of us, but it's absolutely true when God glorifies himself because he is the only perfect being and he is worthy of our glory. The reality is we are not. We are not. And to show us this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is an admonition to be like Jesus in his attitude, represented by his humble laying aside of his privileges. This is an encouragement to us to not cling to what we think are our rights. We're all good at that. Or to promote ourselves or to promote our own glory because only God is truly worthy of glory. Paul's point is that if Jesus, who was in fact God the Son, who did in fact live in a glorified existence before the incarnation, if Jesus can stoop to let go of all that and live the humble existence of his creatures rather than the right he had, a genuine right he had to live as our creator with all the accompanying glory, all the accompanying privileges, We can, in our less glorious, 
less privileged existence, certainly let go of our pride, our rights, our paltry glory, quote unquote, and have the same attitude that Jesus had. That's what Paul's telling us. This is the spirit of Christmas. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is the reality of the word God the Son made flesh who lived among us and humbled himself further by subjecting himself to a slave's death. He made himself nothing. Have this attitude in yourself. Have the same attitude as Jesus, is what Paul tells us. Ultimately, this humble servant spirit of Jesus, as it says in verse 11, results in glory to God. It's why the angels sang on that very first Christmas, glory to God in the highest. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very clear admonition to be like Jesus. And Father, we know that you don't command anything of us that you don't equip us to do. So Father, may our hearts be humble today as we consider the awesome truth of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the maker of the universe, becoming flesh. And not just flesh, Father, but a helpless infant baby. And Lord, when we consider the implication of that and consider the humility that it took for Jesus to demonstrate his love and his grace and his mercy in that way, we are awed and we are humbled as well. Heavenly Father, help us to learn the difference between sharing about ourselves and bragging or boasting. Help us, Heavenly Father, to always consider others as more significant or better than ourselves. Help us, Heavenly Father, to remember that it's not loving to boast or brag or elevate ourselves in any way above our brothers and sisters in Christ or our fellow human beings around us, Father God. We're grateful for these truths, Father, that are so much a part of the Christmas season. We're grateful, Father, that we can celebrate the incarnation, the humbling, the emptying of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, who made himself nothing for our sakes and for the glory, ultimately, for the glory of God. And so we can say, even today, with the angels, glory to God in the highest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.